Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am really excited for today's show. This is something I've been hoping to do for a while, and a guest I've been really hoping to have on for a while, and I'm so excited that he's now here with us. I have with me Dr. Evan Karish, who is a professor of anesthesiology at Duke and the immediate past editor-in-chief of Anesthesiology. He is a well-regarded, well-known around-the-world professor and researcher, and one of his interests, among many, is methadone. And it is actually true that when I heard him give a talk on methadone about six months ago, I came back and immediately changed my practice. It's probably the most impactful talk in terms of making me change my practice right away that I've ever heard. And I have been trying to spread the word about methadone since, but no better way to do it than to have him come on the show and talk about it with me. So I'm really excited for that conversation. Evan, thanks so much for being on the show. Jed, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to to be with you and and provide a little input, wisdom, and and encouragement and excitement, if you will, uh, to the practice and and you're getting message out to your listeners. Fabulous. Well. I could ask you to talk a little bit about your career, but obviously you have such a long and storied career that we'll let people read about that separately. But maybe just tell us a little bit uh, specifically about how you got interested in methadone as a drug and then some of the research around it. Sure. I got interested in methadone when I was an anesthesiology resident. And I was introduced to to the drug by an attending. Uh, this was back when we often used um, fentanyl uh, and and even uh, morphine uh, in, in in intraoperative anesthesia. And and he walked in one day and he said, "What do you know about methadone?" And I said, "Nothing." And he said, "Would you like to give an anesthetic with methadone?" And I said, "Sure." Uh, and, and like all good attendings, uh, at the same time, he handed me an article to read. And this article was was written and published in 1982, uh, it, it, reporting a study by Jeff Gourlay from Australia uh, about the use of intraoperative methadone. And, and the skies parted and the trumpets uh, blared and the angels sang – and it immediately made sense to me because the fundamental concept is using an analgesic drug whose duration of effect well matches the duration of pain. And, and that changed my practice. Uh, he published a f- two follow-up articles uh, comparing methadone to, to morphine, both in the operating room and then also in the recovery room. And ever since then, I had been using uh, methadone in clinical practice. And I, I was convinced, and, and I didn't even see a need for additional research, although I did uh, almost three dozen studies on methadone in a slightly different context but I was using it for decades. I was asked to write an editorial about it by Steve Schaefer for Anesthesia and Analgesia, and, and that was published in 2011, and essentially called for the reappraisal and the reinvigoration of methadone because it made such sense, particularly in the context of our using shorter and shorter and shorter duration opioids over the course of decades 
but without any benefit in clinical outcomes. So I, I thought maybe we should be switching the paradigm, if you will. And that's really what this is about, is better matching uh, the duration of analgesic drug to the duration of surgical pain. Right. That makes so much sense. And it's amazing that it's taken this long for us to start coming around to it. So talk a little bit about the kind of three joint problems of post-operative pain, respiratory depression, and opioid diversion, and how this may play a role in thinking about methadone use. Absolutely. And, and you know, these are what I characterize as the contemporary challenges in, in anesthesia post-operative pain management. The first is our job, in part, is, is to provide uh, adequate, if not outstanding, intraoperative and post-operative analgesia. Uh, it's to prevent post-operative opioid-induced respiratory depression, and it's to do all of this in the context of the opioid crisis, which is, is, is tragic. It's, it's devastating, uh, but it has affected our clinical practice in ways that are unusual, not necessarily to the benefit of patients. So if we look at the first issue of, of analgesia, uh, we know that 80% of surgical patients say that their pain, uh, was not adequately treated. They experienced post-operative pain. Three quarters of them said the pain was moderate to severe. Uh, and, and over the course of, of, of decadal surveys, we've learned that those numbers really haven't improved. The other aspect of this is that when we think about the essential elements of anesthesia, it's analgesia, it's unconsciousness, it's control of, of autonomic, um, responses and it's immobility. Three of those only attend to the intraoperative period. But analgesia extends beyond the operating room to the recovery room and indeed after patients leave our facility. And so the door to the recovery room really isn't the finish line. We think it may be, but it's really not. And we have an opportunity to put patients on a better trajectory for recovery, to do what we can in our short period of interacting with them to set them up for an optimal recovery, to set them up to ideal post-operative analgesia. So that's the element of analgesia, if you will. The element of respiratory depression is that, as, as the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation has said, no patient should be harmed by opioid respiratory depression. But we know that it still goes on. We know that the incidence of fatal respiratory depression uh, is about 1 in 75,000 surgical cases. And, and that's alarmingly high because many of our institutions do those numbers of cases every year. And we know that institutions may have one or two fatalities every year. So we want to be doing what we can to prevent opioid-induced respiratory depression. And then the last aspect of this is the opioid crisis, if you will. Uh, we know that, that this has changed over the course of many years. We know that this started with the inappropriate use of oral chronic opioids by primary care practitioners in patients for whom they were not effective and not indicated. And the result was a lot of habituation, addiction, overdose, and death. But the important thing to remember is this has nothing to do with the operating room. We shouldn't be denying patients adequate analgesia for surgery because 
primary care providers used oral opioids inappropriately. And of course, the major cause of the opioid crisis right now is illicit fentanyl. So we shouldn't be dissuaded from providing adequate analgesia because there's a problem with chronic oral opioids in primary care and a crisis of illicit fentanyl. Yeah, that all makes so much sense. And it seems to me like the idea of a medication that would provide adequate intraoperative and lasting postoperative analgesia while requiring less additional opiate, therefore less to be diverted and less to cause respiratory depression, all of this ties in with thinking about a long-acting medication like methadone. So it makes sense to think about those three issues and how this might address it. Now, you mentioned earlier that we have moved kind of over time to shorter and shorter acting opiates like fentanyl, remifentanyl, sufentanyl, um, alfentanyl. Um, from when you started where maybe, uh, you know, morphine was used more often, a little longer acting. What, what do we know about the reasoning for that? Why, why, what has been the push to use shorter and shorter potent and more and more potent opiates? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I can, can speculate. I, I think one is that, that, uh, when I started out in, in, in anesthesiology, um, almost everything we did was, was within patients. And, and then we switched, uh, to outpatient surgery. And so part of the thinking may have been that, well, for outpatients, we should use shorter duration opioids. I think another element was the, uh, the pharmaceutical aspect that, uh, companies were introducing new opioids. Uh, and they were shorter duration and they had sales forces and, and marketing efforts behind them. So we saw fentanyl, uh, followed by sufentanyl, followed by alfentanyl, followed by remifentanyl. And, and they all had commercial push behind them. Uh, methadone is a, is a, a generic drug. It was developed in the 1930s. Uh, there's no marketing or sales force behind it. So I think that, that really the two elements of, of a switch to outpatient surgery, strong marketing and promotion efforts behind the shorter duration opioids was probably responsible in large part, uh, for the adoption. And then of course, uh, remifentanil is substantially different than those other opioids and, and, uh, in, in some ways, what you might consider it a mistake-proof opioid because you turn it off and it goes away and nobody worries about post-operative respiratory depression. Yes, Remy, very different than the others. Um, of course, Remy also does not provide any post-op analgesia because it goes away. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about methadone. We think about most opiates, fentanyl, Dilaudid, which is hydromorphone, uh, uh, as hitting the mu opiate receptors. What about methadone? What receptors does methadone work on? Methadone uh, it, it does hit the mu opioid receptor uh, very effectively. It also has r effects at other receptors. Uh, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist. Uh, it, it's an inhibitor of serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake. Now, we don't know what the contribution of those non-mu opioid effects are to the clinical effects of methadone. Having said that, though, we do know that the clinical behavior of methadone is different than classical mu opioid agonists. Uh, it's different pharmacodynamically. It's different pharmacokinetically. Uh, 
and it has behaviors which are very different. So, for example, uh, we know that that the classical mu opioid agonists all have cross tolerance. We know that if a patient comes in taking uh, many tens of milligrams of oxycodone per day, uh, they are going to be less responsive to a given dose of fentanyl or, or alfentanil or remifentanil. But we don't see that cross-tolerance with methadone. We don't need higher doses of methadone to achieve the same effects uh, in, in patients who are on chronic opioids, which is also a benefit. What about patients who are on methadone? Do they still, do they have tolerance? In other words, if, do they need a larger dose of additional methadone to get the same effect or no? You know, patients who are on chronic opioids, I like to think of them as having a minimum daily adult requirement. They take those oral opioids every day. Uh, they're going to need them on the day that they come to surgery. So they have that pre-existing requirement. But they also now have an additional requirement for treating their surgical pain. That daily requirement doesn't go away, but the dose that they need for surgical pain is higher with the classical mu opioids, but it's not higher with methadone. Okay. So if someone's on, you know, 80 milligrams a day for, let's say, you know, heroin um, withdrawal or, um, you know, a prior history of heroin use, and they're on 80 a day and they took their 80 that morning, they don't need more than you would give someone who hadn't been on methadone at home. Correct. Right. That surgical yeah. dose really doesn't differ. Great. Okay. Now, you mentioned that one of the uh, actions of methadone is as a serotonin um, re- reuptake inhibitor. Um, do you worry about using methadone in patients who are on SSRIs? No, not at all. Okay. Great. So it's not significant enough to cause serotonin syndrome? Uh, not uh, to the best of my knowledge. There's, there's. I, I think there may be a case report here or there, but... Um, that's just case reports. We don't know causality and we don't know frequency. Uh, the short take-home answer is that that we don't worry about it in patients who are on SSRIs. Right. All right. So we talked a little bit about the different receptors and how methadone works differently. How about um, how it actually acts in the body? How long does it take to take effect? How long does it last? What happens in terms of kind of the pharmacokinetics of, fen- of, uh, of methadone in the body? Sure. Let's, let's take the question of onset first. Uh, we know that, that it takes a period of time for drugs to move from the blood to the effect site. We think the effect site is the brain and, and or the spinal cord. We know that different opioids that we use have different onset times. We can characterize that with a number. Uh, it's called the, the T1 half KE0, which is the half-life, if you will, for the onset of effect. Uh, there are ultra-fast onset opioids like remifentanil and alfentanil. There's fast onset opioids like fentanyl and sufentanil and methadone. Uh, there's slow onset opioids like hydromorphone, and then there's super slow onset like morphine. But the message there is that the onset of effect of methadone, uh, is approximately the same as the onset of effect of fentanyl and sufentanil. Uh, and I show this to, to, 
people that I work with in the operating room. We'll give a dose of, of, of methadone in the operating room. I'll say, watch the clock. I'll tell the patient to tell me when they feel something. And invariably, it's within a minute or two. So that it, the onset looks very much like um, fentanyl or sufentanil. Now, if we look at the, the termination of effect, uh, of course, duration of effect of any drug is determined both by the concentration uh, and the concentration relative to the minimal effective concentration as well as the rate of elimination. But if we simply look at the elimination half-life of the opioids that we use, for remifentanil, it's 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, alfentanil is an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, fentanyl and sufentanil are on the range of 8 to 10 hours. Morphine and hydromorphone are 2 to 3 hours. And methadone is one to three days. It is markedly, markedly longer than any of the other uh, opioids that we use. And it's really that long elimination half-life which confers the long duration of effect. Right, and that's such a key thing. And I think commonly misunderstood that because it lasts so long, people think it must take a long time to take effect. And as you just pointed out, that's not true. It's actually pretty much the same onset time as fentanyl, which we think of as having a pretty fast onset time. So you get the benefit of a, a quick onset and then the benefit of a long duration of action. Now, when we think about that onset time, is it, it's about the same as fentanyl in terms of onset. Is it also about the same to peak effect uh, in terms of how long it takes to reach a peak effect? Approximately. I think that's a reasonable assessment based on, on the numbers that we have uh, that have carefully measured uh, the kinetics of onset of effect. Right. Now, the, 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 the difference is uh, fentanyl redistributes uh, very quickly. At low doses, uh, the duration of effect is relatively short. Uh, methadone's got a much longer duration of effect. You don't need to redose it intraoperatively for the most part. Right. So you get that benefit. It doesn't redistribute out. Now it does, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, there's an initial maybe 15 to 30 minute kind of plasma peak that then comes down to a steady state that will last quite a long time. Is that accurate? That's that's correct. And, and uh, we will sometimes give 10 milligrams of methadone in the holding area. Uh, sometimes we'll give 10 milligrams of methadone, 15 milligrams uh, intraoperatively. Uh, I don't think I would give 20 milligrams uh, to an awake patient because we might see some respiratory depression. Uh, but if there is any respiratory depression, it's occurring very soon after induction uh, so that it is of no consequence. Uh, by the time the case ends, the drug has redistributed. Any concentrations that might have been in the zone of causing respiratory depression um, have declined because of redistribution, and we don't see postoperative respiratory depression. Yeah, so it, would you say that it's safe to give a larger dose like 20 milligrams as long as the case is at least 30 to 45 yeah, minutes in length? Absolutely. And and. Typically, that 20 milligram dose is what we'll use for inpatient surgery. Uh, for same-day discharge surgery, we typically use about 10 milligrams. And for next-day discharge surgery, it's about 15 milligrams. Right. And this is IV. Uh, this is IV push, IV bolus, if you will. Yes. Right. 
Something that has come up, uh, people have asked me is, I, I don't know where this comes from, but there's some, some people believe that it is safer to slowly drip in methadone as opposed to bolus push it. Is that accurate? Is there any evidence to back that up or is it safe to just go ahead and push? Uh, if, if you have an awake patient, uh, you have the, mo- the best monitor there is, which is respiratory rate. So typically in an awake patient, five or 10 milligrams, um, is, a, is a bolus is of, of no consequence. Uh, if I had an awake patient and for some reason wanted to give them 20 milligrams, I might sort of titrate it in incrementally. I see no benefit in, 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 in dripping it in, if you will, to an anesthetized patient. Uh, I would just go ahead and bolus it. That's, that is how I use it as well. So I'm glad I got that right. <laughs> All right. So, um, we talked about the initial kind of peak and then the redistribution and then a long lasting effect. And if you hit that sweet spot of being in the analgesic zone, which as you said, depending on how you dose it, but for you all, for inpatients, you're giving 20 milligrams. And then that is going to give you a solid day to two days of analgesic effect right after the surgery. Or longer. Yeah. Many, many of the studies that have looked at this have, have demonstrated three days of, of, of analgesia after those intravenous doses. Okay. So yeah, you can get even more. That's great. Um, now I, so our IC, so I use this sometimes uh, in the ICU as well. Uh, you know, a patient who maybe is having, did not get it intraoperatively, but is having, you know, particularly, uh, large amounts of pain. Maybe the, the medications we're using aren't really helping. And I'll say, you know, on rounds, why don't we give some methadone? And sometimes our pharmacist will say, well, we should do it Q8 hours, three times a day instead of once because that's better for pain, whereas the once a day is better for withdrawal from, from, you know, kind of heroin type, um, dosing. Is there any, uh, is there any reason that that makes sense? I have a, a theory, which is that if you're giving small doses, then you may need multiple doses a day to get up into that analgesic zone. Whereas in the operating room, we can, as you said, we can give a bigger dose and not have to worry about that initial respiratory depression. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I don't have personal experience with, with using methadone in the ICU. Uh, w- w- the, w- the drug has a half-life of, of, of one to three days, uh, and, and in, in sort of conventional pharmacology, we often say that to maintain steady state, you, you, you can give, you know, half the dose at, at, at each half-life, if you will. Uh, there's some old, literature that that says the duration of analgesia is shorter than the half-life. And, and that's basically true for almost every drug we use. Uh, the duration of effect really depends on, on the dose that you're using. The goal is to achieve and maintain a concentration above the minimal effective concentration. Uh, whether you do that with once-a-day dosing uh, w- with a drug with a very long half-life uh, if you split it into to multiple doses per day, you want to be sure that you're getting above that minimal effective concentration. If you give tiny doses and don't get above the effective concentration, no longer, no matter how long the half-life is, it's not going to be effective. Right. That makes total sense. So we talked about how you tend to use it intraoperatively. You mentioned the doses of 20 milligrams for an inpatient, 15 for someone staying overnight, and 10 for someone going home the same day. That's not weight based, right? You're just giving these doses. Correct. And, and, and where that comes from is, 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 uh, two studies that, that I did, uh, with colleagues several years ago, uh, in outpatient 
surgery. Uh, one group was same-day discharge. The other was next-day discharge. And, and this was the first foray into using methadone in outpatients. And, and so we did what we called a dose escalation study, where we started with a methadone dose that we were pretty sure was going to be too low. And, and every group of patients, we looked at the results and, and decided if the dose was adequate or whether we needed to increase the dose and look at an additional group of patients. In those studies, we dosed to ideal body weight. One of the challenges we face today in, in treating patients is, is that, um, when we mean body weight, what do we mean? Is it actual body weight? Is it fat free mass? Or is it ideal body weight? Uh, when, when every patient weighed 75 kilograms, um, dosing to weight was relatively straightforward. We now see patients that may be one, two, three, or four times that 75 kilos. Uh, and, and so we don't want to make dosing recommendations that are based on, on, let's say, ideal body weight and have them used for actual body weight. So we've been very specific about our studies where we dose to ideal body weight. What we found was that in the same-day discharge cohort, uh, the ideal dose was uh, 0.15 milligrams per kilo. But since everybody has about the same ideal body weight, that really translated to about 10 milligrams. Uh, in the next-day discharge cohort, it was 0.25 milligrams per kilo of ideal body weight, which roughly translated to about 15 milligrams. And, and so we tend to recommend 10 or 15 milligrams, which is a conservative dose, uh, which is particularly important for people who are, are using the drug um, for the first time. Um, if one wants to fine-tune it after that, um, one can, but as a general starting recommendation, those doses based on, on ideal body weight convert to 10 or 15 milligrams. And this is particularly helpful because we don't we can calculate what a patient's ideal body weight is, but it's not a number that that we can calculate very easily. Right. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense, and we feel like, at the very least, as you said, these are relatively conservative numbers that are pretty safe. Do you make an adjustment down for older patients, you know, an 80-year-old patient? Would you adjust the, let's say, the 20 milligrams for an inpatient? Would you adjust that down at all? Yeah, I I, I would. I, I like to say that for the, for inpatients particularly, uh, I, I may adjust it down for, for patients that are sort of over the age of, of 60 physiologically. And, and, and to be frank, that's a very seat of the pants assessment. Uh, we all walk up to the bedside. We see some patients, uh, who are 40, but may look 70. We occasionally may see a 70 year old who looks 40. Uh, and, and so we know that, that there's not a lot of data on the kinetics and pharmacodynamics of, of methadone in, in older patients. Uh, so we can always give more. So I, I may be a little conservative in, in those older, perhaps more frail, uh, patients. And I'll give 15 instead of 20 because I also use methadone in the recovery room uh, for the same reasons that I use it in the operating room. 
So if patients are uncomfortable when they wake up, we may give them a little bit more in the operating room. Uh, we'll certainly give them more in the recovery room if they're uncomfortable, uh, but we can always give more. So we're conservative in terms of that dosing. Right. So let's talk about that end uh, of case and into the recovery room phase. When a patient at the end of the case starts, you start lighting the anesthesia, hopefully they start breathing. When do you expect them to start breathing? Is the CO2 a little higher because of the methadone than it would have been, let's say, if you hadn't given it? What's your expectation there? And then what indicators would make you give an additional dose at the end of the case before you've extubated? Great question. What we typically see, and and it, I've seen this with methadone, I've seen this with virtually any other opioid that I've that I've used uh, is that if if we're giving opioids at the end of the case to ensure that patients are going to wake up pain free, they will very often have respiratory rates in in the mid teens uh, and and end tidal CO twos in the high forties. Uh, after the the ten, fifteen, or twenty milligram doses of of methadone, we typically see respiratory rates right around twelve. Uh, and we'll see end tidal CO2s in the high 40s or low 50s. And, and so what I remind practitioners is that at the end of the case, they need to let the CO2 rise in order for patients to start breathing. Uh, if the CO2 has been in the 30s, I'll, and they may get a little anxious and say, well, the patient's not breathing. And I'll say, that's sure, they're not breathing. Let the CO2 rise. When it hits high 40s or low 50s, they will start to breathe. Uh, and invariably, that's exactly what happens. Now, every once in a while, we may see a patient who's breathing 20 times a minute. Uh, and at the end of a case, we've reversed the neuromuscular blockade. Uh, we've largely let their, their, uh, propofol or volatile anesthetic, uh, taper off. Uh, if they're breathing 20 times a minute at the end of the case, we'll give them another couple of milligrams of methadone before we wake them up. Uh, to get their respiratory rate down in the 12 to 15 range so that they'll wake up comfortably. And invariably, that's what happens. Um, we'll, we'll turn off our, our um, volatile agent or let the, the propofol wear off, uh, ask the patient to open their eyes. They do. Sometimes we will tell them they have a tube in their windpipe to help them breathe. We ask them to nod if they would like to have the tube out. They nod yes. We take the tube out and they wake up very comfortably. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. All right, and we're back. And Dr. Karish had just talked about how they wake up so comfortably when they get methadone. Yeah, that's, that's what I've seen too. And what's amazing is, and I always tell my residents this, is that unlike if you had used a little fentanyl, a little Dilaudid to get the patient comfortable at that moment, you don't know what they're going to be like in 20 minutes. But if you've gotten them comfortable with the methadone, you can be pretty confident that they're going to remain comfortable for hours to days as opposed to just a few minutes. Is That's that right? right. Absolutely. And, and our, our recovery room nurses particularly notice the difference. Uh, I've had experiences where, where, uh, a recovery room nurse, uh, called me and, and said, you're the person who's doing that study, aren't you? And, and, and I sort of warily say yes, because you know, I wonder what's coming next. And w- what she said was, well, I, I don't know what you're doing, but half the patients look great. I wish you would do it for the other half of the patients. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And I, I told you offline before that, you know, after I'd been doing this for a few months, I got an email from one of our PACU nurses saying, your patients are so comfortable. I'm not having to give them opiates. I'm not having to worry about their pain in the PACU. Why aren't we doing this for everybody? And so, it, I mean, it, this is the kind, it really is noticeable from our PACU nurses. Um, now, for you all, you have the ability, as you said, to actually give or write for the nurses to give some additional methadone if needed in the PACU. And how is that dosed? What what we've uh, settled on is is a a standing order, and we have like most institutions that that use Epic, we have sort of standing orders. Check the box. Uh, one of the orders we have is for postoperative methadone, and and it's written for two milligrams at a time every five to ten minutes, up to a maximum of six. And, and, and where that comes from is in part from those original studies by Jeff Gourlay, uh, where five milligrams in the PACU was, was a very effective dose. Uh, I have said, well, let's do two at a time just to be conservative. Uh, and, and, and it is so rare that after those 10, 15 or 20 milligram intraoperative doses and, and up to six in the PACU that a patient still has pain, I want to get a phone call from that PACU nurse because I want to go see the patient. And we want to make sure that they're, in fact, treating pain. And the classic example that I talk about uh, is, is prostatectomies. Prostatectomies are somewhat painful, but they also cause bladder spasm. And we want to make sure that the nurses aren't treating bladder spasm with opioids because bladder spasm doesn't respond well to opioids. And we not to, we want to make sure that they're not giving repeated doses of methadone to the point where there are unwanted side effects. So for example, the treatment to bladder spasm is, is peridium or, or other antispasmodics, not opioids. And, and so I don't want to get a phone call that, well, we've given methadone to the point of unconsciousness and they're still having bladder spasms. Uh, so there is nothing better than a walk over to the PACU to assess a patient. 
Yep. That makes total sense. And, you know, what I do, because we don't have the ability yet, I hope we get there, to write for methadone to be given by our PACU nurses, is I just explain to them that I've given methadone. My hope is they will need very little, if any, opiate in the PACU. And if they do, you know, then to use some small doses of fentanyl, and that should probably be fine. But I find that most of them don't need it at all. And so that works really nicely. Um, let's say you have a patient who has an epidural placed preoperatively for, let's say, a, a big open abdominal surgery or thoracic surgery. And the plan, the anesthesiologist, or if you're the anesthesiologist, your plan is to run that epidural during the case. Would you still give um, intraoperative methadone to that patient? Great question, Jed. In general, I don't mix neuraxial and regional anesthesia with long-duration opioids. Uh, like you, I put uh, epidurals uh, in in uh, body cavity cases. Uh, I run them during the case, and that's my primary mode of analgesia. Uh, if the epidural's working, they shouldn't need more in the way of analgesia. But most importantly, uh, we use opioids to treat pain. We use pain to counteract the side effects of opioids. If we suddenly lyse the pain with a regional technique or a neuraxial anesthetic, we now don't have something to counteract the side effects of opioids. And so for that reason, I don't mix those. I don't mix methadone with regional or neuraxial analgesia. I don't think they need it. Uh, we don't have good data as to what the right dose might be. Uh, and I don't think it's needed. Great. How about other sedating medications? These days, a lot of patients who are on ERAS pathways get gabapentin. Um, intraoperatively, patients may get Presidex, lidocaine infusions. Obviously, a lot of patients get Versed. Uh, are the, do, you, do you mix these with methadone or do you try to avoid them? Great question. We know that in general, uh, sedative hypnotics potentiate the respiratory depressant effects of opioids. Doesn't matter what the sedative hypnotic is. Doesn't matter what the opioid is. But if we're going to use a long-duration opioid, the potential for that adverse interaction between sedative hypnotics and opioids becomes more of a concern. So for that reason, I suggest that we avoid sedating medicines in conjunction with methadone, particularly gabapentinoids, which we now know um, carries a, a, a black box warning of, about that interaction. Uh, so there was a time when we would routinely give relatively large concentrations and doses of gabapentinoids to patients preoperatively, routinely. Uh, at least at our institution, we've stopped doing that. Uh, so I, I would suggest not using gabapentinoids preoperatively. Uh, a milligram or two of midazolam at the beginning of the case, typically fine. Uh, when it comes to the choice of postoperative antiemetics, I suggest sort of trying to avoid sedating postoperative antiemetics, such as diphenhydramine, H1 blockers, phenothiazines, dopaminergics, because they can be sedating, and that sedation-opioid interaction is something that we'd like to avoid. So I tend to prefer non-sedating antiemetics uh, in the recovery room. 
Uh, I stay away from things like dexmedetomidine for that same reason. The interaction between dexmedetomidine and opioids can really potentiate respiratory depression. And with a long-duration opioid, that's a greater concern. Right. All right. That makes a lot of sense. I remember being taught that met- this is a while back in medical school, but that methadone is a, quote, dirty drug, that it interacts with all kinds of other drugs, that it is metabolized by hepatic P450 cytochrome enzyme. I think probably it was CYP3A4 that I was taught um, and that that causes all kinds of other drug-drug interactions. I think we've come to realize that may not be true, right? What, what do we know about uh, the risk of drug-drug interactions with methadone? You know, I, I think that the, your statement is, is, is right on. The, what we, we now know much more than we did in the past. And, and, and we know exactly when those drug interactions might occur. We know that there's far fewer of them, uh, than we originally thought. Uh, we know that, that methadone is not metabolized clinically by P453A4, which is where most of the, a lot of the drug interactions in medicine occur. It's actually metabolized by a different P450 called P452B6. And from the perspective of inhibition, which is what we really worry about is, are we going to run into, to inhibited metabolism and even more prolonged duration of effect? There are really relatively few inhibitory drug interactions with P452B6 and particularly with methadone. The one where you are going to see a drug interaction is with uh, things like barbiturates, uh, where if anything, the drugs are going to go away faster, not slower. But that risk space for methadone is actually much, much smaller than we thought for a while. Right. All right. That's really important to know. The other thing that people say a lot about methadone or know about methadone is that it has a black box warning for QT prolongation. Is that something we should be worrying about when we're thinking about giving it in the operating room as a single dose? You're absolutely right. It does carry a a, a black box warning. The genesis of that black box warning was in in much, much higher doses uh, that were used predominantly for opioid use disorder. Uh, we know from the original MedWatch database uh, th- that the doses that patients were receiving where they were getting reports of QT prolongation were averaging three to 400 milligrams per day. Uh, we know that the QT effect of methadone is, is, is greater and greater the longer that the drug is used. So for a single dose in the range of 10 to 20 milligrams, I don't worry about QT prolongation. I think it's a non-issue. Great. That's really crucial. What about a patient who has a known long QT that, you know, they, whether it's familial or for whatever reason, they have an EKG showing a QT of 600, a QTC of 600 preoperatively. Does that change your thoughts on giving methadone to those patients? It's a good question. I'm not aware of any data. Uh, that, that says whether it should be used, it can be used, or, or it shouldn't be used. I think that out of an abundance of caution, I might not do it. Uh, but I, I cannot remember the last time I took care of a patient who, who came to the operating room with a, a diagnosis of prolonged QT. Uh, I, I think it's pretty rare, yes, at least in I our agree. experience. Yep. I agree with you there. Um, and we already talked about this, but 
pushing it as a bolus versus dripping it doesn't affect the QT prolongation? Um, never done that experiment, but uh, since I don't worry about pushing 10 to 20 milligrams for any reason, I wouldn't worry about it from a QT perspective. Right. Um, so what about uh, organ function? Do we need to worry about methadone use in patients with renal insufficiency or hepatic insufficiency? Good question. Uh, let's look at, let's take the renal question first. Uh, we know that, that methadone is extensively metabolized in the liver. Uh, about 15 to 20% is eliminated unchanged in the kidneys. Uh, we now know that um, patients who have renal insufficiency who get methadone don't respond any differently. Uh, so there have been a couple of reviews that have been published in the past uh, couple of years that have essentially said that uh, risks of methadone in patients with mild renal insufficiency, moderate renal insufficiency are really no different than patients with normal renal function. I don't have experience uh, with patients who are on dialysis. Uh, I can't tell you whether it is or is not eliminated in a dialysate. I should probably know that, but I don't. Uh, I might not use it just because I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to go look it up. Uh, but in patients with mild to moderate renal insufficiency, uh, I, I feel comfortable giving it. Uh, because of extensive hepatic metabolism, uh, I, I wouldn't use it in patients with moderate to severe hepatic disease. Mild elevations in liver functions tests, I, I don't view as being problematic. Okay. Now, for a one-time dose, it seems to me, but I absolutely could be wrong here, that the worst-case scenario, if it wasn't eliminated as quickly or if it wasn't metabolized as quickly, is that it would just last longer, but that actually might be a benefit, it seems to me, right? Because if you've hit the analgesic zone, you're, if you've only given one dose, you shouldn't jump up into the respiratory depression zone, right? So is that, am I thinking about this incorrectly? No, you, you, you are thinking about it correctly. Uh, and, and this starts to get into to, you know, a little bit more sophisticated pharmacokinetics. If you have impaired elimination, it's generally not going to affect your peak, okay? And, and, and you're right, it would last uh, a, a little bit longer, uh, and, and I think that, that, uh, for other drugs, you might, for example, succinylcholine. If you impair the elimination of succinylcholine because the elimination is so quick, you may get a higher peak effect, but you don't see that with methadone. Uh, it's an interesting question whether, uh, you would want a drug with a one-week half-life as opposed to a two- to three-day half-life. It's an intriguing, intriguing question. We don't have that drug right now, but I think that that certainly a drug with a two- to three-day half-life is going to give you much better analgesia than drugs with half-lives that are measured in minutes to hours. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a lot about why methadone is uh, potentially has some benefits over others, certainly is not inferior in any of the ways that people tend to bring up about its interactions or its QT prolongation. Let's talk about the evidence for potential superiority over what people might refer to as standard of care. In other words, fentanyl and hydromorphone, which uh, at least where, where I practice are the most commonly used medications intra and, and immediately postoperatively. So what evidence do we have that methadone may actually be superior for 
pain control, patient satisfaction, uh, total opioid use? Very important question. Uh, since that original uh, series of, of, of articles in the 80s, uh, over the course of the past decade or so, there have been a number uh, of clinical investigations uh, in a variety of different surgical populations and, and surgical procedures that have compared methadone to other opioids. Uh, some of those comparisons have been to fentanyl. Some have been to hydromorphone. Uh, but the, the consistent result uh, has been that patients who got methadone um, had about 30 to 40% lower pain scores postoperatively for the first three days or so. Uh, even given the ability to have unlimited postoperative opioid analgesia with, for example, PCA, uh, they had, they used 30 to 40% less postoperative opioid. Uh, even though they used less opioid, they had lower pain scores and their satisfaction scores were much better. Uh, and then the fourth most important thing perhaps is, is that the side effect profile was no different in terms of opioid related side effects or generalized side effects. So, so what you have is less pain, less postoperative opioid use, uh, more satisfied patients, and a side effect profile that's no different. So in a sense, it's, it's all of the benefits without downsides. Yeah, that's very compelling. Is it true that methadone can improve post-operative pain even 30 days post-operatively? Uh, and if so, how? What, what do we think the mechanism there is? Yeah, it is, it is true. Um, and, and there have been a few studies that have looked at this, not many, and, and we do need more. Uh, some studies done by, uh, Dr. Glenn Murphy, uh, who did these interestingly in private practice, some of the very, very best clinical research that I've ever seen, uh, did some of these seminal studies with, with methadone. Uh, and he, he did one study in spine surgery, did another study in cardiac surgery. And not only did he follow these patients in the hospital, but he followed them for weeks and months postoperatively. And what he found was that the patients who got methadone had less pain and opioid use for one to three months postoperatively uh, compared to the patients who got a different intraoperative opioid. In the outpatient studies that we did, uh, we sent patients home with diaries for 30 days, and we asked them to, to record their pain and their opioid use. And we found that the patients who got methadone compared to uh, – short-duration opioids, typically fentanyl and hydromorphone, uh, used less opioid in that 30-day period, and they had lower pain scores in that 30-day period, and their pain scores went to zero faster than the other patients. So, you know, there are very few things that we do in the operating room that confers benefit for days, weeks, or months postoperatively. Methadone is is really one of the few, if any. Yeah, it's incredible. And is the thought, I mean, obviously there isn't, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I don't think there's methadone in the bloodstream 30 days out. So is it is the thought that the NMDA receptor antagonism is somehow preventing the kind of windup of development of potential chronic pain? Why, you know, what's the proposed mechanism for, for this action? We, we, we don't know exactly what the mechanism is. What we do know is, is that 
chronic postoperative pain occurs in 5 to 80% of patients. We know that acute post-op pain is the single biggest contributor or risk factor in the perioperative period to development of chronic post-surgical pain. So the hypothesis is that by doing a better job of treating acute post-operative pain, we are going to do a better job at preventing the development of chronic post-surgical pain. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. There's at least one study I remember seeing that suggested that methadone plus ketamine was better than methadone alone. Is that true? And if so, what dose of ketamine and and how is it just interoperatively or does it need to be used postoperatively as well? Great question. This goes back to to that investigator, uh, Dr. Glenn Murphy. Uh, and, and after he did his, his really elegantly done methadone studies, asked the question, um, is there benefit of adding ketamine to methadone? Uh, and he did that study. Uh, and, and so, uh, he uh, used intraoperative ketamine as an infusion, but he also continued the ketamine infusion for 48 hours postoperatively. So this was a low-dose ketamine infusion. And what he found was that uh, analgesia was better and, and, and opioid use was less in, in, in the group that got ketamine plus methadone compared to methadone alone. So not only was methadone better than than, than um, short-duration opioids, but a low-dose ketamine infusion at least intraoperatively and for two days postoperatively was better than methadone alone. We don't have any data on, on whether there's a benefit of just intraoperative ketamine plus methadone, uh, compared to methadone alone. That's an important question, but we don't have the answer. Okay. Now, how often are you doing this? Would you say most, if not all of the patients you take to the operating room are getting methadone? What percentage do you, you yourself use it in? It's, it's certainly the majority. And, okay. and I, I, I do it for a couple of reasons. One is I, I think it's a better anesthetic, um, yep. based on everything that, that we've talked about. The other is that I'm at a teaching institution and, and I, I want to, um, expose our residents and, and our CRNAs to this, uh, in the same way that I was exposed to it, uh, as a trainee and it changed my practice. Uh, the, the 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 expression on a trainee's face when they do an anesthetic with methadone and and you see that that their face brightens and they say well why don't we do this more often um you know that's the reward of teaching is is to provide something new to somebody um, who hasn't done this before yeah i feel the exact same way and and you know again if you hadn't Given the talk you gave and that I hadn't heard, I, I would not be doing it now. And so getting that exposure, my hope also for our residents is that they will uh, get to do this with me and then they will make this part of their practice. And my hope of having you here is that lots of people will hear this and start asking the questions of their attendings or, or attendings themselves will start asking their questions of themselves. You know, why am I not using this? And maybe I'll give it a try. We've covered so much great ground. Evan, is there anything that we didn't cover about methadone that you think is important to include? Well, I think one other point is is uh, cost effectiveness, uh, mm. and, and you know we per, we don't always pay as much attention to to the cost of what we do as as perhaps we should. Uh, but if we, for example, compare the the cost of of several hours of a remifentanil infusion 
to the cost of, of a single dose of methadone, uh, that single cost of methadone is only 10 to 20 percent uh, the cost of that remifentanil infusion. So it is a very cost-effective uh, approach to anesthesia care as well as being effective. Yep, absolutely. And that is a very important point as well. So let's move on. I have to ask you, because it's just one of my favorite stories I've heard in a long time. You told me this when we were together at a conference, and I'm hoping you'll be willing to share it with the audience about how you dealt in the most anesthesiologist way possible with a rat problem that you had in your house. Uh, many, many years ago, um, I, I had what I came to learn was roof rats in my house. And, and at night, um, I would hear a lot of scurrying about above the ceiling in my bedroom, which was needless to say, quite unnerving. Uh, and I inquired around and people said, yes, uh, we have a problem in Seattle with what we call roof rats. Uh, they probably got in somehow uh, through one of the roof vents and they're nocturnal. So you're hearing them scurry about at night. And, and I would stay awake well into the night because I, I did not like lying in bed listening to these rodents scurrying about in my attic. And I, I went to work and was sharing this experience with one of my colleagues and, and my distress. And he looked at me and he said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm an anesthesiologist. And he said, so? And I had the aha moment. So I went to my lab where I had several bottles of, of uh, volatile anesthetic. And this was in a period of time where I was doing a lot of, of uh, research with sevoflurane. Uh, and one of the great benefits of sevoflurane was its rapid onset of effect. So I took a bottle of sevoflurane um, from my lab. It had been donated to me, so so I wasn't diverting anything or using it inappropriately. Uh, and, and I took a big glass syringe home, and I drilled a little tiny hole uh, through the door to the attic uh, in my bedroom, and as nightfall happened and I started hearing the scurrying about, I pumped my attic full of sevoflurane. And over the course of a few minutes, the scurrying got less and less and less, and it stopped. At which point, I opened the trap door to my attic and climbed into the attic and gathered up a few well-anesthetized rats, uh, put them in a paper bag, uh, and, and, and took them outside to dispose of them. That is amazing. Uh, that is definitely the best rat story I have ever heard. Uh, well done. I'm glad it worked. Um, <laughs> we're not recommending anybody try that at home, but it is a fun story. Um, well, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something you'd like to share with the audience uh, that you think would be fun for them to check out? Sure. I would, I would say if, if you, uh, if you have cable access and you get Hulu, um, I'm not shilling for Hulu, but, but, um, I'm strongly recommending a television show called The Bear. Uh, this is extremely, extremely well written and well acted. Uh, and, and, and it's kind of billed as a comedy, but it's a comedy. It's a drama. Uh, it, it has some very important messages. It's very heartwarming. Uh, and, and it particularly hits home with me because it 
it's cited at a restaurant in Chicago, which serves Italian beef sandwiches. And it's a the storyline is essentially a Michelin star chef whose brother runs uh, this Italian beef shop. Uh, and, and his brother dies and the Michelin star chef comes home to run the sandwich shop. And every time I grew up eating Italian beef sandwiches at that sandwich shop. And every time I go back to Chicago, it's one of the things I have to do. And so it hits home with me personally, but it is so well acted and so well messaged that I recommend it. That's awesome. I keep hearing how great it is, and I'm embarrassed to say I haven't watched it yet, but it's absolutely on my list. So thanks for the reminder of how good that show is. I'll recommend a show that I just started watching uh, on um, – it is on uh, Paramount Plus, and it's called Tulsa King. It is not – I wouldn't say it's the best show in the world, but Sylvester Stallone stars in it, and he is so good in this show. It is like – uh, you know, I don't know what he's been doing recently, but he it just knocks it out of the park. He's incredible. His his character is amazing. The other characters are very good, too. And uh, I'm not that far. In. I'm, maybe I'm on episode four of the first season. But if you like Sylvester Stallone or you just want a little diversion and fun um, show, check out Tulsa King on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, the I should say the 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 um, plot is that he was a was in the mob in New York, gets goes away for 25 years in prison. He gets out. Obviously, the world has changed completely. The mob kind of doesn't have anything for him in New York, so they send him to Tulsa and tell him, this is your city. You go to Tulsa and you take it over. And it's about what happens when he gets there, and it's pretty, pretty good. Um, Evan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much for, for having me and, and allowing me to answer your questions. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? 
Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.